Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Guadalupe San Miguel Jr., uh, who's the author of Chicano Struggles for Education, Activism in the Community. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Guadalupe San Miguel Jr., who is the author of Chicano Struggles for Education, Activism in the Community. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Wonderful. It was a um, really interesting book at the intersection of such a number of, of uh, political and, and historical issues that are important to education. Before we get to the book, maybe you can introduce yourself just a little bit, uh, where you are now, where, where you've been, if it matters, and something uh, about yourself as, as a historian and political scientist. Okay. Um, well, I was, I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is in South Texas. Uh, and um, then I went to um, school on the East Coast uh, and then on the West Coast, and I taught in California for about 13 years, and then I came uh, to the University of Houston around 1991. Most of my research is in the area of um, educational struggles and social movements, um, issues of language and culture in the 20th century, and more recently I've also um, Dabbled in um, the area of uh, culture, particularly in in Tex-Mex music. Uh, so, um, for the most part, I, I like to consider myself not simply just a scholar, but also a um, political activist. I've I've worked in the community in various uh, capacities, but uh, the one that I enjoyed the most was as parent advocate uh, in the schools. And so, for many decades, and I've been involved. Uh, with um, parents, uh, organizing parents in the schools uh, and um, ensuring that the local school districts uh, hear parents uh, and what parents have to say about what's going on in the schools. Um, but um, aside from that that kind of activism, uh, which has given me a great deal of insight into many struggles, you know, I, I write and teach uh, about um, educational struggles in the community. Uh, and I love to deal with students uh, who are always interested in these in these issues. So. Yeah, you're in this very background you described uh, very much shows up in the book. I think the book um, has that that feel, that um, very authentic feel of someone who is um, uh, viewing these these issues as a scholar, but also someone who's been involved in, in some of these. And so let's let's talk about the book. Um, your book focuses on the period of 1960 to 2010. Before we get to that time period, how would you characterize the education provided to Mexican-Americans prior to that, let's say from the turn of the century up to the 1960s? What was going on immediately before your book begins? Well, um, for the most part, um, I think we can look at it in several different ways. One is that for the majority of Mexican-American students and Spanish-speaking students in general, uh, that would also include, for instance, Puerto Ricans on the East Coast uh, after second, the Second World War. But for the most part, it was a, a, um, a segregated schooling. 
uh, while some Mexican-Americans did go to school with white children, for the most part, the majority went to schools in separate facilities. And most of those facilities tended to be inferior to um, white schools, and the education provided to children in those schools tended to be limited in many ways. Um, in terms of culture, for instance, which is a very important ingredient in the experience of Mexican-Americans in the schools, uh, Mexican-American culture, for the most part, was um, repressed or suppressed by local school officials for most of the 20th century. Uh, in fact, when we talk about the Chicano movement, the the effort to mobilize uh, during the 60s and 70s, especially by young people, um, one of the key elements of that reform is always to do away with the Spanish, no Spanish-speaking rules and the um, English-only rules, which played a crucial role in the schooling of Mexican children. So when we look at the education then of Mexican-Americans, in the 20th century, for the most part, we're talking about segregated, uh, um, inferior, uh, and um, culturally repressive. Uh, and that would sort of explain much of the schooling of most children. Again, a lot of individuals don't understand that um, the the patterns that um, sort of um, illustrate this uh, weren't consistent throughout and weren't as rigid as it was with, uh, let's say, African-American children. Um, but um, for the most part, the majority of Mexican-Americans experienced those types of schools. Now, now, change came in many forms during the 1960s, and that's much of what the start of the book talks about. Let's begin with that change in regard to representation. So what was the pattern of representation of Latinos on school boards and, and other educational boards during that time period? What, what about representation itself? Um, well, in terms of before the 1960s or after the 1960s? After the 1960s, um, when, when, when it began to change someone right. somewhat from the world that you just described. Right. Well, what we see are, are initial trends um, – where uh, Mexican-Americans begin actively um, getting actively involved in, in the schools to get individuals elected to office. In some of these cases, um, they're full of conflict because uh, whites are not used to having Mexican-Americans run for office and get elected to office. Uh, so from the very, in the very beginning, you do have a great deal of conflict, for instance, around Crystal Cities, probably the best-known example, where Mexican-Americans took over the local school board and then initiated a variety of changes that uh, reflected the Mexican-American experience. Uh, they hired Mexican-American teachers and administrators and had programs uh, around bilingual education, and much of that um, – created a great deal of conflict among whites who opposed all of those kinds of changes. So in, initially you had some examples like that. You had one or two examples in Southern California in the mid and late 60s. Um, and then you had more in Southern Texas. Uh, but by the 70s, what you began to see is an increased number of Mexican Americans in these positions. And in 
certain look, um, um, areas like, for instance, South Texas, where the majority of individuals are of Mexican descent, uh, they began to take over the local school boards. So that small communities like McAllen, Texas, or Mission, Texas, or even Edinburgh, Texas, in many of these small communities, you began to see Mexican-Americans become the majority group in the school board positions. And they themselves then began hiring superintendents to begin um, bringing about changes in the schools. That began in the late 60s and early 70s, and then uh, later on by the mid-70s and late 70s, uh, MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and other groups um, began to challenge the various ways in which um, uh, local school officials and state officials had created obstacles for the election of Mexican-Americans to these positions. Uh, for instance, they began to challenge the uh, single-member district, uh, uh, the uh, school-wide um, positions, um, district-wide positions that um, Mexican-Americans were uh, unable to um, get elected to, and they began to um, form smaller um, single-member districts where Mexican-Americans could get elected. So it was a combination then of activism by, by young people uh, and parents um, seeking to get their members elected to office uh, at this early period. And then you had the participation of um, middle-class groups like MALDEF challenging some of these structural barriers to increased access to um, office holding. And so over the, the decades, what has occurred is that by the 80s and 90s, you had significant numbers of Mexican-Americans elected to a large number of these positions in the local school uh, um, elections as well as in the city elections. So it, it was a gradual process, but the 60s was important because prior to the 60s, what we had was actually exclusion of Mexican-Americans from um, office, and the 60s essentially disrupted that pattern and opened up the process so that Mexican-Americans could get elected. Now, but despite this progress but on, on the representational front, you describe, according to other indicators, Mexican-American students were facing greater segregation, uh, and this is despite repeated legal challenges. So, what was the legal strategy of, of Mexican-American groups to challenge segregation in cases like the Cisneros case or Serrano or the Rodriguez case, these, these real seminal cases in, in education, uh, uh, education policy uh, uh, terrain? Uh, what was the strategy that was used to, to challenge segregation? Yes, well, in, in, the, um, in the 60s, um, beginning in the late 60s, a variety of groups began to um, initiate lawsuits to dismantle segregated schools. And this was a campaign that had been initiated much earlier in the, uh, actually in the mid-20s, uh, where Mexican-Americans had gone to court and challenged uh, segregation. Um, but in the 60s, they had changed the strategies and um, linked it up to uh, the 
um, litigation strategies that African Americans have been using. Uh, and in this sense, then, they were able to get decisions that, that favored the dismantling of schools. But as in the case of African American desegregation, uh, the process was slow and there was a great deal of opposition. And uh, for about a decade or so, Mexican Americans were actively involved in challenging segregation in most of the major cities that we know of in the in, in the country, you know, Oxnard, Los Angeles, um, Albuquerque, um, San Antonio, Dallas, um, Houston. Um, but after a while, uh, many individuals began to notice that in the process of trying to get integrated schools, the local officials were closing the Mexican-American schools and busing Mexican-Americans out, outside to the white communities. And so Anglo children or white children were not coming into the Mexican schools. And that um, began to raise a whole series of questions within the community um, because it was difficult to get parental involvement, for example, if your son was being bused or daughter was being bused, you know, an hour away from, from your community. Um, it created all sorts of issues with respect to what kind of education are they getting in, in those particular schools. Uh, so many people began to raise questions about the strategy of desegregation. Uh, and around that same time, others had been promoting a different strategy, the strategy not of dispersing children to white schools, uh, but the, the strategy of concentrating Mexican children to give them uh, an education where language and culture were an integral part of the curriculum. And so they began to promote bilingual education as a more effective way to increase school success. And at some point in time in the mid and late 70s, those two strategies clashed, they even clashed uh, with respect to the Supreme Court. For instance, the Supreme Court uh, issued in 74, they issued a, a law decision that said the local school districts um, had um, to provide uh, an instruction uh, in a language that the children understood. Most people, most activists, perceived that decision as favoring bilingual education. Um, at the same time, the Supreme Court decision in Brown and a variety of other decisions have argued, had argued that uh, the schools had to um, integrate, and so that meant dispersing the children. And once you did that, you couldn't establish bilingual programs. So many members in the community then began to raise the issue, you know, should we send our children out of the schools and have local school officials close down the Mexican schools? Or should we encourage their concentration and improve their education in the community schools, in the neighborhood schools? Um, and so, in essence, the community took that, um, made that decision that bilingual education would be a more effective strategy for improving the education of Mexican-American children um, and support for desegregating the schools or integrating them um, uh, declined over time. So that by the 1980s, the vast majority of Mexican-Americans supported bilingual education as a strategy 
and there was very little support for integration uh, of the schools. Um, it was a very – okay, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say this, this very much um, and nicely takes us up to the more contemporary time period um, and, and some of the, the, the critical education issues of the last 20 years or so. Um, and so I was wondering, and you can continue, but um, how um, Mexican-American activists have responded to the school choice movement of the last 20 years. I wonder if you can sort of link these things together for us, how the um, issue of desegregation, uh, bilingual education, and then school choice become uh, related issues. Yes. Well, in, in terms of, of school choice, for, for instance, uh, and again, I deal with it in the book that a lot of times when people talk about activism, um, they assume that Mexican-Americans have only been involved in public schools. But um, Mexican-Americans have also supported various types of non-public schooling. Um, they've supported various types of religious instruction, for instance. Uh, there's a, a, a long history of, of sending uh, the children to Catholic schools, for instance. Um, in in the early 20th century, Mexican-Americans also began to send the children to Protestant schools. Um, and then they also formed their own uh, schools in the community, community-based schools. Um, in the uh, 80s, um, because the schools still didn't improve as much. Now, again, the desegregation struggle ended. And so what happened is that there was no more pressure to integrate the schools. So many of the schools became more concentrated with respect to Mexican-Americans, and they became more highly segregated. Uh, and because the community was largely poor, uh, these segregated schools continued to have limited resources. Uh, many individuals in the community in the um, late 80s and early 90s began to look for different kinds of strategies because the schools were still bad. Uh, and when um, primarily conservatives began to argue on behalf of having, for instance, uh, charter schools or having um, um, private schools, Mexican-American individuals um, began to argue that maybe they should pursue that strategy as well, given that many of the schools were not going to change, even when Mexican-Americans were members of the school board because of their limited resources. So they began to uh, consider the possibility of establishing charter schools, and they pressured local and state officials for resources. Um, and this type of effort sort of coincided with the uh, conservative movement in the United States, um, initiated largely by white uh, um, individuals who who wanted to um, undermine public education or who wanted to um, uh, send their kids to uh, their own types of schools. Uh, and here's where you have the merging then of the conservative movement in the United States and Mexican-American activists who who argue that they could utilize those kinds of ideas uh, to establish schools that would be much more innovative in the way they taught Mexican-American children. Um, initially, it was the schools were nationalist in that they primarily focused on teaching Mexican-American children about the language and culture uh, as part of that effort. But 
by the late 1990s, um, more and more individuals began to focus on the notion simply of academic achievement. The idea of what are the strategies to improve the uh, educational success of individuals, of Mexican Americans who live in poor neighborhoods. And so they looked for individuals who were creative in their teaching, who looked beyond uh, traditional notions of uh, teaching uh, underprivileged kids. Uh, and um, in many ways, then, they also contributed then to the to the rise of the charter school movement uh, in the United States. Uh, and you have large numbers of groups uh, in various cities, Chicago, Houston, L.A., and others, uh, that are very much part of this uh, effort and support the idea of uh, having innovative ways of teaching uh, Mexican-American children in schools that are located in, in the community. Yeah, you end the book with some, some lessons learned. So I wonder briefly, what can we learn from this book? What are, what are those lessons that, that you want to leave your audience with? Well, I, I think there's, there's, there's seven lessons, I mean several lessons, I should say. Um, the first one I, that I try to emphasize a, a great deal in the book is that the struggle by Mexican-Americans is much broader than we have been led to believe. Again, most individuals uh, are beginning to know, for instance, about the um, legal challenges against um, discrimination or segregation. Uh, many individuals know about the Mendez case in the 40s and the Cisneros case in the 60s and, and other cases like that. Uh, while that is a very important component of activism, what I'm trying to show in this book is that while Mexican-Americans have contributed to contesting discriminatory policies uh, in the United States uh, and have expanded those struggles in the period after the 1960s to include a whole uh, variety of uh, practices, you know, from um, no Spanish-speaking rules to um, uh, unequal uh, funding of the schools uh, to testing to a variety of discriminatory policies, a variety of practices that uh, negatively impact the education of Mexican-Americans. That's important, but what I'm trying to show is that in addition to that, Mexican-Americans have also engaged in other kinds of struggles where they have promoted reforms that would meet their political needs and their cultural needs as well as their academic needs. Uh, for instance, again, the struggles in support of running for office and getting elected to office. That's a relatively new development in the 20th century. And Mexican-Americans, um, for the most part, were not contesting discrimination. What they were doing is they were promoting their political interests in the system, uh, something that had not, not been done before effectively. Uh, in fighting for bilingual education, is likewise, when we look at those kinds of struggles, especially after the 1968, we see Mexican-Americans uh, argue that in order for the instruction of Mexican-American children to be effective, in language has to be an important component of that instruction. Uh, language to ensure that the children learn English, but also language to um, um, ensure that uh, the, the heritage is promoted in the curriculum. 
So those become important. But likewise, Mexican-Americans have also been involved in non-public schooling, and they have supported religious instruction. They have supported private instruction. They have supported community-based instruction. So Mexican-Americans are very diverse in the strategies, and it's not simply just of contesting discrimination, but of advocating for other types of political and um, uh, cultural reforms as well as uh, supporting and promoting religious and private uh, secular instruction uh, in the community. So that becomes one of the most important um, facets of the lessons that we learned, that this struggle is much broader than simply one of contestation. Um, the other is that uh, the issue of language and culture is also an integral part of the struggle. Um, the United States, um, for um, you know, many decades, has tried to stamp out the language and cultural identity of Mexican Americans, um, and it has passed all kinds of laws and policies and statutes and um, procedures, and um, in an effort to eliminate the language and cultural identity of Mexican Americans, and while what these struggles show is that the Mexican-Americans have consistently fought to maintain the language and culture. Uh, Mexican-Americans realize that they are American, uh, and as Americans, they need to learn English, and they need to know about American ways. But they have also promoted the notion of what some, um, Milton Gordon called many decades ago, uh, cultural pluralism. The idea is that they can become American and learn and maintain the language and culture of their ancestors. Uh, and in this sense, then, they become bicultural and biliterate Americans, uh, individuals that can relate to their home country um, because they still have family in the home country, in this case, Mexico or Central America or Latin America, um, but that they are also full-fledged Americans who believe in democracy, in liberty, and in the freedom that the country stands for. Um, and then probably the, the, the third one is that when we look at the struggles uh, that individuals conducted, uh, multifaceted struggles, uh, sometimes by themselves, sometimes with other individuals, sometimes they were multiracial, sometimes they were um, um, single um, um, ethnic group struggles, but when we look at all of these struggles, we see that individuals from all the classes in the community and of both genders participated in these struggles at different points in time. Uh, there is no one single leader, no one single organization that led these struggles. Um, multiple organizations and multiple leaders, both male and female, young and old, middle class and working class, labor union and uh, professionals, that all of these individuals have participated in trying to improve the schools for Spanish-speaking children, for Mexican-Americans, but in the process, improving the schools for all Americans. Uh, and so, in, in essence, those are the kinds of things that um, I, I think that we can learn from this book, that the struggle is extremely broad and complicated, that the, the struggle um, 
incorporates language and culture, which is an integral part of the identity of Mexican-Americans, and that people of all classes and genders and ages have been uh, playing instrumental roles in these struggles and continue to play instrumental roles in these struggles in today's world. Yeah, there's just so much to learn from this from this book, uh, Chicano Struggles for Education Activism in the Community, published uh, this year by Texas A&M Press, uh, by uh, Guadalupe San Miguel, Jr. Thank you very much for your time today and your book. Well, thank you very much for this interview. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I hope that people pick up the book and read it, and then if they have any comments, I encourage them to to contact me. Uh, Again, thank you very much for, for this interview.